0: Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breed Love to your advisor and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Brian Estes, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really glad to have you here. Uh, It's been a long time coming. Um, You are one of my first few guests. We're doing this live, so this is a really cool experience. And it looks like today we're going to do kind of an interesting educational run here through a lot of things Bitcoin, um, but before we get into that, maybe you could just give my audience a little bit of background about yourself, your experience, uh, what you do in the Bitcoin space, how you got into Bitcoin, a little okay. bit of that.
1: And so I'm probably one of the older guys in, in the space, <laughs> with, um, being 54, but um, yeah, I started off um, you know, early in my career as a stockbroker when I was 22. Um, I was an institutional equity broker for a company called AG Edwards for 14 years. Um, Left that company in 2004, started my own registered investment advisory firm where I was the outsourced CIO for seven endowments and foundations in the St. Louis area, uh, managing about $350 million for them. And then in 2014, I saw Cameron and Tyler Winkleboss on CNBC talking about Bitcoin when it was $100. And coming from traditional finance, I I just thought it was a scam, right? Mm -hmm. It was probably this internet funny money, pump and dump scheme. But after I looked into it, I I understood what it was instantly. And um, I decided to sell my practice and sold it to Wells Fargo Advisors and took that capital and started building blockchain companies eight years ago. Wow.
0: So you instantly got it. You just read the white paper? I read the
1: white paper three times. The third time I read it, I got it. Wow. I say instantly, but it was the third time I read the white paper. It it, it clicked with me. I I have a computer science background. Oh, okay. Um, I started coding when I was 14 years old, back in the early eighties. So I've, you know, I've coded Fortran, Pascal, like all those ancient languages, you know, I used to write software for the Air Force when I was in high school. Um, I have multiple software patents, but um, you know it was the combination of the you know the computer science background and the finance background mm-hmm. that came together right in that one instant that allowed me to understand how we're going to rebuild our entire financial system on blockchain technology mm. and I, I just I, I couldn't sleep for a week after it clicked, <laughs> and you know I, I would lay in bed and I just couldn't sleep you know because I, I just had to be involved.
0: I laugh because that's like a common story with people when they mm-hmm. s- see the light of Bitcoin Like you end up just falling down this rabbit hole like I, I was up late for months reading and reading and reading um, I didn't I guess I didn't have the computer science background You had to get it just from the white paper It took me a lot of the economics perspectives mm-hmm. to really see it um, That's super cool And so I, what are you doing now? Did you mention the name of
1: Yeah, so I'm the CEO and I'm the CIO of Off the Chain Capital we're a private investment fund. We manage about $450 million of assets for about 200 limited partners. Um, so the funds a value oriented blockchain fund. So we're not a venture fund, we're not a Bitcoin fund. We look for mispriced digital assets mm. and undervalued equity in the blockchain space. So Thanks. we're using our traditional like Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett approach, but applying it to blockchain.
0: Very cool, very cool. And you do, you mentioned you do, you teach classes? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I I teach at Morgan State University, Washington U. I've taught um, classes at Tulane and Columbia. And then in May, I start teaching at University of Cambridge over in England.
0: Awesome. Very cool. So I guess today we can do, I guess, get a, a sample of the types of classes you teach to some extent. Hopefully, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's
1: it's educational. Hopefully, it's gonna be interesting.
0: Yeah, well, that's so. great. I have a very deep passion for education myself, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Should we start then in the history of money?
1: Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, you know, I think it's important to you know understand like what is money, right? Like, mm-hmm. what is it? Right? I agree. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, if we look back, you know, let's let's just start at the very beginning when when we as humans developed we lived in tribes of hundred to 150 people and whatever the local in that local area, whatever the scarce commodity was, you know, it could have been salt or stones or shells. And that's what we decided to store our value. And that, that was our money. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why we, you know, stored our value. But the problem with that is that if one tribe would travel 10 or 20 miles and go try to do commerce or trade with another tribe, and one was using stones, another one was using salt, there's too much friction in that. Uh And so we as humans defaulted, and we we decided collectively 3,500 years ago to use like gold and silver Mm -hmm. as our money. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've used for thousands of years until 1971. And what happened in 1971 was that Nixon took the US off the gold standard. Uh And so, you know, for 51 years now, our money's been backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. And so that, that system is failing. We, we see cracks in the system. Um, you know, when the government can just go out and print 30 to 40% more U.S. dollars over a two-year period, um, which causes prices to go up because the dollar is worthless. Um, I'm not saying worthless. I'm saying worth less, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then you know, it causes pain to, yeah. to people. And so that system needs to be fixed, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm a you know, firm believer that Bitcoin is one of the solutions to fixing that problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, agreed with that. Um, <clears throat> I've, you know, what agreed very clearly on the what is money question. I think it is the most important question that people can mine for truth or answers, really, to understand what's going on in the world today. So, and I guess one of the main answers to that question that a lot of people don't understand is that it is a technology ultimately, right? It's a tool for solving a problem. The problem being uh, the transference of value across space and time. Mm -hmm. What has driven this change? Like we, as you said, we started out with kind of prehistoric tools for, Mm -hmm. for satisfying this function. We got to gold and silver. And now we've we've gone away from that. Yeah, society. So the transition,
1: you know, like I said, we were gold and silver. Then in the 11th century, the Chinese invented paper money. Mm. So a thousand years ago, you know, the, that was the new technology. This paper money, it's mm-hmm. lightweight, it's more portable, it's mm-hmm. more divisible than this heavy bag of gold, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was new technology a thousand years ago. And then, you know, we, you know, and then it's, you know, 560 years ago the Medici family started using what's called double entry bookkeeping, Mm -hmm. um, which created the ledger, right? That's the ledger technology. And so ledger technology we've been using for 500 years now. And that's what created the banks. Banks are ledgers. They're just big ledgers. And that's what created the bond market. And so all Bitcoin is, is the same ledger technology that we've been using for 500 years with a little added twist to it. And they had a twist is that it's distributed and it's updated every 10 minutes. So it's distributed around the world to 10,000 nodes and it's updated every 10 minutes. So it's a decentralized ledger that uses the power of the internet. And so it, we're not inventing anything new, it's mm-hmm. just the same ledger. So I basically call this like triple entry bookkeeping mm. instead of double entry, which is basic ledger, it's triple entry because it's being updated every ten minutes and blasted around the world. Mm-hmm. So we're all using one universal ledger, and so that's the new technology. You know, it's it, it's not, um, you know, it's not anything like super special where we're inventing like fire, mm-hmm. but it is you know a very important milestone for humankind because it's not allow us to, you know, get off, you know, fiat money money that's right. not backed by anything. And we go to a hard money standard like we have been on for 3,500 years. Right,
0: right, right. Yeah, that's a real important realization too, I think, when you're mining this question is that hard money is the norm. The past 100 some odd years is the anomaly, really. Mm -hmm. Whereas we just, due to recency bias, I guess, we think this is the norm. Right. Um, And it's just not the case. Um, And so the, the double entry and debits, credits, the third entry is basically the timestamp, right? That yeah, exactly. universal and the universal f-
1: distributed nature of it. Yes, yeah. okay.
0: Yeah. And the importance of that is single source of truth effectively, right? Right, yeah. you have one universal
1: ledger. You don't know, like, if you have a JP Morgan account, and I have a Bank of America account. If I move money or you know, if I send you money, your JP Morgan, my Bank of America, I have to reconcile. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to get together and, and balance the books, mm-hmm. right? With Bitcoin, it's one universal ledger. Mm-hmm. There's no balancing. there's no reconciliation that's yeah. needed. It's just I'm transferring you know value to you. yes, it just happens instantly. so there's one, like you said, one universal form of truth.
0: yeah, 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 so simple, yet implications so profound, mm-hmm. um, and the idea of something just automatically auditing itself, reconciling itself. Maybe it's not fire. Don't tell Michael Saylor that. (laughs) But it is a, it's a simple yet tremendous innovation, right. For human, for scaling human cooperation. Right. It's
1: very disruptive too. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, we've been using banks for 500 years. We've been using accountants Uh and, you know, audit firms for hundreds of years. Right. Uh I mean, you know, their jobs are in jeopardy if this, you know, grows to be, you know, at scale. Yeah. So it's gonna be very disruptive. But yeah. also beneficial too.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think you just in terms of just pure economics of just unlocking all of this human potential, right? We don't have to devote so much energy towards reconciling these disparate accounts. We all kind of function within one ledger that reconciles itself. Makes a lot of sense. Um the petrodollar. What so we go off the gold standard in nineteen seventy one.
1: What is the petrodollar? Yeah. All right. So in 1971, we went off the gold standard, um, in 72, 73 and 74, the U S went into a major recession. So that was called stagflation. We were suffering from stagflation. So we had high inflation, low output basically. And so it was being caused by going off the gold standard. Right. And so the U S had to do something. So, um, we went to the oil producing States. And, um, by say so I many countries like Saudi Arabia and the oil producing countries, and we set an agreement with them. And the agreement was you sell your oil in dollars and we'll protect you with our military. So you don't have to have a military. And so in effect, our dollars were now being backed by oil, mm-hmm. a commodity, mm-hmm. right? Instead of being backed by gold, now it's being backed by oil. So now we have this and you know, military-industrial complex to protect the oil-producing nations, um, which basically protects our dollar, mm-hmm. right? And that's the petrodollar. Well, that system broke around three weeks ago, and mm-hmm. nobody's talking about this, right? No, and I, it's it's very strange to me that it's not on the news and no one's talking about it. But what broke was that Russia decided to sell oil to India for rupees. Mm-hmm. Instead of dollars. And Iran is selling oil to China for yen Mm -hmm. or Mm yuan. And so, you know, it's, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's happening. You know, countries are starting to sell oil in denominations that other than dollars. Right. And so the system broke. The system is breaking or it has broken. And so what that means is that our money isn't backed by our dollars. Or U.S. dollars aren't backed by oil anymore right now. So what are they backed by? They're backed by the trust in the government. Well, I mean, how many people trust the government after what just happened with COVID? Right. You know, I mean, we've been lied to for two years. So, yeah, it's, you know, trust is, you know, at a, you know, is at a minimum. And, you know, and, and that's what's, you know, backing our money. I mean, it's just, you know, it's very
0: uncomfortable to think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um I, there's a great point that the dollar was backed by gold originally, which a lot of people don't know or remember, which is interesting, um, which is itself kind of you know, being tethered to a commodity like gold is effectively tethering it to the energy necessary to produce gold, right? That was the proof of work that made gold valuable. When we went off the gold standard, we immediately had to get onto another standard to create some reserva- reservation demand for the dollar. Mm-hmm. So we moved from gold to black gold, And to your point, we're in early April 2022, three weeks-ish ago, that broke um, due to this this Russia-Ukraine conflict. And that really, I mean, that has massive potential geopolitical implications for the dollar. Because now, if countries are settling in currencies other than dollar, settling oil transactions in currencies other than the dollar, that reservation demand now goes away. So we may see... What additional inflation, presumably, in the dollar?
1: Yeah, you, you see the debasement of the dollar, yeah, right, which people call inflation, mm-hmm. but it's really the you know, it just takes more dollars to buy the same thing, yeah. You know, like home prices were up 20 to 30 percent over the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, my home isn't 20 percent bigger than it was a year right. ago, right? I don't <laughs> have more bedrooms or a bigger <laughs> yard, or yeah. you know, my home's the same size, but it just takes more depreciated dollars to buy the same thing. right? And same thing with Bitcoin, right? I mean, you know, one Bitcoin is equal to one Bitcoin, it just takes more dollars to buy them. yeah, Because, you know, the dollars are losing their value.
0: So. Yeah, and there's so few people that understand that illusion, it seems like. We tend to, for better or worse, we do denominate ourselves, most of us, I mean, especially in the US, but even globally, denominate ourselves in dollars. So we think if we have more dollars than we did yesterday, we're better off, but to your point, if it's depreciated over time, that's not necessarily the case. So what do, where does this go? So we have the petrodollar, petrodollar breaking down. Um you've got some other things in the notes here. I don't know if you want to hit on. Yeah, I think the everything bubble.
1: Okay. So yeah, you know, it's a great chart to you know throw on there. But yeah. the everything bubble is you look at the household net worth compared to GDP. So your value should be commensurate with your output, right? Mm-hmm. And it was like that till 1971. But since 1971, the the household value, the household net worth mm-hmm. has grown dramatic, dramatically faster than your output. Mm-hmm. And what's causing that is, you know, you yeah. know, it's you know the printing of money. Right, It's, you know, our, our, our assets are worth more because interest rates are near zero. And so it pushes up asset prices. And so that can't last, you know, that, that can't continue forever. Mm-hmm. So eventually your output should equal your net worth. And so eventually all that comes back together. Yeah. So, which means like, you know, there could be a lot of pain in the future. Yeah. As that, the value of those assets come back down to reality.
0: Right, right, right. And so the the post-1971, I mean, the main pain, it seems to me, at least for households, is there's that decoupling between wages and productivity, right? Like mm-hmm. there's more economic value being created, but it's being captured not by the producers themselves, being captured by... Asset holders. Asset holders, right, yeah. yeah.
1: If you own real estate, if you own... You know, stocks, S&P 500. Yes. You know, like a great example is um, over the past two years, Apple stock went from $1 trillion in value to $3 trillion in value. That's crazy. Okay. Um, But if you look at the earnings per share, the earnings didn't go up that much. Right, Earnings were up about 25%. Yeah. But the stock went up 200%. Right. So... That's, an, you know, that's that's a direct result of people taking dollars and plugging them into the S&P 500 or plugging them into Apple right. as a store of value.
0: Right. Yeah, so a couple of consequences here. One is the middle class is being decimated, right? I mean, or those that don't hold assets, let's say they're being taxed harder and harder via this inflation. Those that hold assets are getting disproportionate share of that. It's basically a wealth transfer, right? From non-asset Huge. holders to All asset holders. Or caused by the Federal Reserve. Right. Yeah. And then to your point, equities like Apple, so the money's not storing value, right? Which is one of the main functions of money to store value across time. Mm-hmm. If the money's not doing that, something else has to fulfill that role. Apple stock is one big one. You know, the, the Fang stocks, I guess, have absorbed that role. Um, and that creates a lot of distortions in the marketplace. Right. No, it's, you know,
1: that's it, ex- you're 100% right. I mean, uh-huh. just look at the stock market over the past, you know, 2 years. Yeah, you, know, you would think that if you're in a pandemic and, uh, you know, and the we we're in a recession and the economy shut down, that the value of companies would go down. Uh-huh. But the value of the S&P 500's up. Right. Over the past <laughs> 2 years. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's being manipulated is, uh, you know, instead of distorted, it's been manipulated. manipulated yeah. The government doesn't want to allow asset prices to go down. Yeah. They, they don't want the pain of that. Right. So, and if you look at who owns the assets, are there people who run corporations, run the government,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know, but the people that are getting the pain, that are receiving the pain, are people who don't have a voice. Yeah. Uh, people that are plumbers, electricians, mm-hmm people that work for hourly wages, you know, their, their gas prices are going up, their electricity is going up, their car prices, used car prices are up 40%. Mm. Um, Home prices are going up. You know, the federal reserve is buying back mortgages. They're, you know, they're pumping money into the mortgage market, pushing down interest rates, which push up home prices, which prices people out of homes. Yep. You know, if, if you're you know making thirty forty thousand 40,000 a year, you can't afford a home anymore. Uh-huh. And you go to rent an apartment and apartment rents are up 30 to 40% too. Right. You know, I mean, and it's, you know, it's being caused by this manipulation of the
0: monetary system. Yeah. And among those voiceless that are being negatively affected, I often think too about future generations, right? That we're just <laughs> messing this thing up really bad. Um, but fortunately there is something there's light i guess emerging with bitcoin at least as, a, as an alternative to all of this um so how do we how is bitcoin different than this system how is how does it fix the problems that we've created in the traditional monetary system so the
1: traditional system like with fiat money there's an unlimited supply of it uh-huh. you know, you could look at you know a lot of the you know former fed presidents on, you know, 60 minutes, uh, you know, talking about, you know, there's an unlimited supply of right. you know, dollars. Infinite cash. There, right? Yeah, you Neil Kashkari, Kes- <laughs> Kes- right? <laughs> um, so with Bitcoin, there's a finite supply. It's capped at 21 million. Um, no matter how high the value or how high the price goes for Bitcoin, you can't create 22 million. Mm-hmm. That's capped at 21. Um, and it's a predetermined rate of issuance. It's, you know, we know the monetary supply. Mm -hmm. Right now there's 900 Bitcoin being generated every day. And in 2024, it's gonna get cut to 450 Bitcoin a day. And in 2028, it's gonna get cut to 225 Bitcoin a day. Uh And so we know the predetermined cycle of the issuance of Bitcoin. And if it's like a measuring stick, it's like a yardstick, right? Mm It, uh, you know you, you, you know you know there's 36 inches in a yard mm-hmm. and you know that today and you know that in the future. Mm-hmm. right You can't change 36 inches in a yard. Um, but with our monetary system, you know we don't know that. Right. We don't know, you know right now there's 30 trillion dollars of debt. We know that there's 120 trillion dollars of unfunded liability over the next 30 years. Mm. So these are you know payments that have to be made, to retirees for social security, for Medicare, you know, for military retirement benefits. Uh-huh. Um, so even if we don't do anything, there's gonna be a, an additional $120 trillion of US dollars printed over the next 30 years. So in 30 years, instead of 30 trillion, we're gonna have $150 trillion of debt. So what will the dollar be worth in 30 years when there's $150 trillion of debt out there? And these are guaranteed obligations that we have. Right. The government has two choices. Either print more money or don't pay the obligation. Right. And no politicians, you know, every politician is not you know vote to yeah. pay the obligation. They just not pay it with depreciated dollars or debased dollars.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point too. And I, I believe it's at least being talked about now that we would have universal basic income in dollars. So I think it was $500 every month or two weeks. And to your point, like once a politician, that would be political suicide to ever try to unwind that, right? To say, hey, vote for me. I'm going to take away the free checks. So once this thing gets rolling, it's like it only goes one direction, which is depreciated dollars. I I was against universal basic income when Mm -hmm. I first heard about it. But if you
1: think about it, kind of makes a little bit of sense for the people that can't keep up
0: There's yeah you know, i mean
1: yeah i mean you can call it welfare but yeah. i mean that's what it is yeah but yeah you know there are people that are in pain right now they can't keep up with expenses because the government has mismanaged the monetary system yeah so yes you know, i think it's the government's responsibility to help the people at the bottom out yeah
0: yeah but th- that
1: just exacerbates the problem though yes. it yeah. doesn't
0: fix the problem so i'm like you disagree with it in principle but once you're in the situation you almost have no choice and but it also seems like it would accelerate the demise of the system itself right because then you're just exacerbating inflation ultimately yeah so i I think the government has decided that they're in like a
1: managed situation they're trying to manage the downfall right instead of let it collapse you know it's a managed collapse controlled demolition exactly right (laughs) And so it it brings you to like, well, what's next? Yeah. What's, what's after that? Yeah. And that's, I mean, are we going back to a gold standard? Are we going to a Bitcoin standard? Is there something different? I mean, out there. Right. So, I mean, you know, I I think we both think it's going to be a Bitcoin standard. Yeah. But, you know, it could be something, you know, that we haven't thought of either.
0: True. But presumably, again, the norm of human history being a hard money, it's gonna be either gold or Bitcoin because mm-hmm. those are the only hard money technologies that are viable for um, a global society or even a, a large national society. Where is Bitcoin on that trajectory? I th- I know we have some talk about transaction volume here. Yeah, a
1: lot of people think they've missed Bitcoin, right? Yeah. I, I learned about it in 2014. I thought I was late mm-hmm. in 2014 a lot of my friends were buying it at $10 yeah. and I started buying it at like 250. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, back then it was a market cap of $3 billion. Today it's, you know, around 850 billion yeah. Yeah. market cap. Um, but if you look at in the U S and this is under Biden's announcement three weeks ago, um, the president announced that 25% of U.S. households own Bitcoin today, wow. so it's it's a sizable amount of people mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, if you look outside the U.S., it's only about one percent. Mm. So U.S. you know we're we're in the lead on that with adoption. Um, if you look at the addressable market for Bitcoin, um, you could take gold. You know Bitcoin's eating gold, mm-hmm. so gold's a ten trillion dollar market cap. You could look at global bonds, which are 120 trillion. Um, M2 money supply, you know, you could add all this up and Bitcoin represents about 2% of the addressable market Uh. um, of of money. Uh So that's, you know, that's still small. It's still early. You know, you haven't missed it.
0: Yeah, agreed. And it's, um, the other thing, I mean, there's actually like a pressure via inflation that's driving people into non-inflation money, which is effectively what Bitcoin is. So not only is it early days, but the prevailing conditions are worsening for people in inflationary money. So there's like, there's also this, just a pressure, I think. And you can almost anticipate the movement if you study what happens when um, money gets super inflationary, people start buying scarce assets, right, to protect Mm -hmm. themselves. Um, And in that scope, Bitcoin is among the most scarce assets the scarcest scarce. asset, right?
1: Yeah. Or, or, so, th- right now it's gold. Gold is the scarcest mm-hmm. asset on earth relative to a what's called a stock to flow model. Right. Right. So, go- gold stock to flow is around 60 to 1. Bitcoin stock to flow is 57 to 1. Mm-hmm. So, you know, gold's a little bit more scarce mm-hmm. than Bitcoin. But after the next halving in May of 2024, or March of 2024, um, Bitcoin stock to flow ratio goes to like 110, 120 Doubles, to one. Yeah, yeah. And so Bitcoin becomes the scarcest asset on earth in two years. And if gold has a $10 trillion market cap today and Bitcoin has less than a trillion, you would think that Bitcoins would be worth as least as much as gold in two years. Yeah. So that means Bitcoin should be worth $10 trillion. So it should go up 10X over the next two years.
0: Yeah, it's staggering to think about honestly, because gold, It's a tool we've been using for 5,000 years. And now we're talking about, I guess, Bitcoin would be 15, 16 years old by then Mm -hmm. being as valuable as gold. Yeah, but it's better, though, right? I mean, Bitcoin is
1: more portable than gold. It's more divisible than gold. And it's more verifiable than gold. Yeah. You know, if we used gold for 3,500 years and now we have this better version of gold. Why wouldn't humans just default to that? Right, and that's what you see. You, you, you see people opting in. Yeah, you know, it's not. No one's being forced to own Bitcoin. Right. You know, it's you know when people learn about it, they they opt into the system. They opt into this parallel system. Yeah. You know, and you know maybe they don't put a hundred percent of their money into mm-hmm. it, but one or two percent. You know, it seems like a reasonable you know bet. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know if you give the chance of this parallel system becoming the system Mm -hmm. and maybe you should have one or two percent of your money in it just to hedge your risk
0: yeah yeah and again like during as the currency's inflated more it's actually creating incentives for people to move further out along the risk curve so you end up buying a little bit of bitcoin even as just a means for augmenting um portfolio performance, right? Even if it's just 1% or yeah, that's, what, I mean, that's what
1: the federal reserve said, uh, four years ago. So in January of 2018, the federal reserve bank of St. Louis came out with a white paper hmm. and in their white paper, it says that Bitcoin will emerge as a investment and diversification tool. Hmm. Okay, And what they meant by diversification tool was that it's a non correlated asset. And so what that means, it doesn't mean it's negatively correlated, like a a negatively correlated asset would mean if the stock market went down, Bitcoin would go up. Uh That's a negative correlation. Uh They're not saying that, they're saying it's not correlated. So a non-correlated asset means if the stock market goes down, Bitcoin goes up. Uh But sometimes the stock market goes down and Bitcoin goes down too. Uh There's no rhyme or reason to Bitcoin's movement relative to traditional assets. And the reason is that we value Bitcoin as a network. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a network. You know, you use what's called Metcalf's law mm-hmm. to, to value Bitcoin. And so networks are valued differently than stocks and bonds and real estate and gold and, you know, other types of commodities. Mm-hmm. And so because networks value differently, they're just non-correlated. Yeah. And that's what the federal reserve was saying is that you add a small amount of a non correlated asset to your investment portfolio, it actually increases what's called the sharp ratio yep. or the risk adjusted returns in your portfolio. And so all you have to do is add one or two percent to your portfolio and you increase your performance and reduce your risk at the same time. Right. And and if you're a fiduciary or you're an asset manager, you're you're under like a personal or fiduciary responsibility to right. do that for your clients. Right. And as more and more financial managers and asset managers and endowments and, you know, start to understand you know, the Sharpe ratio and the fundamentals of yeah. around adding non-correlated assets like Bitcoin to their portfolio, they start to do it. Because yeah. they're, you know, they're under an obligation to do that for right. their clients.
0: Yeah, it's such a key point that it's fully voluntary that it is, Bitcoin's effectively bootstrapping its own adoption by incentivizing everyone that interacts with it, right? Um, and again, in a world where things are becoming increasingly risky and uncertain, this thing becomes like a, a must-have in your portfolio for optimizing risk-adjusted return. And then, then the scarcity kind of kicks in, right? It's like people are making small contributions initially, but because of its perfect inelasticity of supply, right? All of that additional demand is expressed in price, increase in price increases its chance of success, which increases portfolio allocations into it. And this is the thing we keep trying to describe. It's like there's this vortex of positive incentives that is Bitcoin that nobody knows how to stop. <laughs> and that was the discovery that Satoshi Nakamoto made, yeah. right?
1: It wasn't new technology. He didn't invent cryptography, mm-hmm. didn't invent math, you know, or she. Um, the inventor of Bitcoin invented the incentive system
2: mm-hmm.
1: around the whole putting it all together with the yeah. proper incentives. Right. It's economics. It's you, know, you incentivize people to do things and they'll
0: do them. <laughs> well, Charlie Munger, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. But he doesn't get Bitcoin. I don't get that. Um, okay, so the deep question on you know what is money... I think what is Bitcoin is equally a difficult question. We use a lot of analogies, digital gold, the internet of money. I think the internet is very useful and I think um, you've got some things to say about that, but it, it's a great lens through which to view Bitcoin's proliferation because we've just saw something similar happen with the internet, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you relate? How do you answer the question? What is Bitcoin through the scope of the internet?
1: Yeah. So when we built the internet 30 years ago, I'm a lot older than you. I remember (laughs) building, helping build the internet. But when we built the internet 30 years ago, it was built incorrectly. Mm. So Mark Andreessen and I went to college together at university of Illinois. Um, He was two years younger. When he graduated, he started a company called Netscape. Mm -hmm. Netscape's original goal, or excuse me, Netscape. um, When Mark graduated, he wanted to create this software, that allowed the transfer of money through the internet, right? And they couldn't figure out how to do it. And so they built Netscape on top of the traditional banking system Uh. using credit cards and traditional banks, right? Um, And then a few years later in 1998, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, and Luke Nosek started a company called PayPal. PayPal's original mission was to create Bitcoin. They wanted to create the software that allowed a peer-to-peer transfer of value through the internet. And they couldn't figure out how to do that either. Mm-hmm. So PayPal defaulted to using the US dollar. And so this has been a long-standing problem, mm-hmm. not being able to transfer value through the internet without using a bank or a credit card or like PayPal. Or, mm-hmm. And so when Satoshi Nakamoto invented the Bitcoin blockchain, that was the solution. Mm-hmm. It was the, it, you know, it's something that we've been searching for for 30 years. And finally someone figured out how to create the software that allowed us to transfer value through the internet. And so, you know, that that's why it's so important is, you know, it, it's that solution to the fact that we built the internet wrong thirty years ago. Right. And so what I'm doing, what, you know, venture capitalists are doing around the world, we're rebuilding the internet on blockchain technology. Mm. The entire internet's being rebuilt correctly this time. Right. And it's not going to happen overnight, but over the next 10 to 20 years, we will have a internet based on blockchain, not on the banking system.
0: Yeah. And the current instantiation of the internet has in many ways come to reflect kind of that banking system that has all of its own problems. um, And that, you know, and to the problem that was hard to overcome was you, how to transfer economic value through the internet without needing to trust any intermediary or any individual, right? There wasn't a trustless or trust-minimized way or to do it. Or permission. Or like, permissionless. Like
1: if I send you an email or I send you data, right? Hmm. I don't need permission right. to send you that information. You don't need permission to receive it either. Right. Right, you just, you know, it's a, email is a peer-to-peer network, yeah. right? Our money is not like that. Our money is if I send you a dollar, you know, outside of blockchain. If Mm -hmm. I send you a dollar through PayPal, Mm -hmm. I need to have a PayPal account. That means PayPal has to agree to give me a PayPal account. I need permission from PayPal to you know have an account. You need permission from PayPal to have an account, and so we need permission from PayPal or Bank of America, or J.P. Morgan. And the
0: government indirectly, right? Right, KYC exactly. and all this. yeah.
1: Yeah, and if the government doesn't like what you're contributing to, like up in Canada yeah. a couple months ago, like if you would have bought a, tru- a hat supporting the truckers for $10, <laughs> your bank account got shut down. Crazy. So, you know, that's, you know, so, you know, so blockchain gets you out of that permissioned system. Yeah. And so that we're free to transfer value to each other without permission
0: from the government or from the banks. Yeah. Again, so simple and obvious. Like, of course we, it's free speech, right? We should be able to communicate freely without permission. I don't need anyone's permission to use the English language. Why should I need to seek anyone's permission to transfer the fruits of my labor as money? You shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's, Yeah. <laughs> Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist, bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out hard money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currencies. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible, and then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. brought this up too that Milton Friedman I mean again this is not it's a rev- revolutionary technology but it had been thought about by a lot of people yeah, in the back a lot in 1999 ways. Milton Friedman identified yeah. the problem
1: yeah you know there's no e cash system you know for person A to transfer value to person B through the internet without having a third party clear that transaction for mm-hmm. us and that was one of the problems with the internet and so block you know the bitcoin blockchain solved that problem yeah, you know that was this you know the piece that was missing out of you know we had all these protocols out there. So all Bitcoin is it's open source internet protocol software, and that sounds like a lot, but we use that every day. When it, when you get on the internet, you see that HTTP up mm-hmm. there. That's Hypertext Transfer Protocol. Mm-hmm. That's open source internet protocol software. When we send email to each other, we're all using the same software. It's called SMTP, mm-hmm. Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, and you know, so we could send you know data to each other. And eventually, we're all going to be on the same protocol called Bitcoin, yep. and so we could all send money through. You know, we won't use Bitcoin. We'll use a layer on top of that, like Lightning Network mm-hmm. or Venmo or like the Facebook. You know, toy. there'll be other layers on top of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But, you know, eventually we'll all be using a blockchain application to transfer money.
0: Yeah. And what, what are the, what are the implications of that re-architecting of the internet? Because one of the things I think about with Bitcoin, it's like, uh, okay, the money thing, obviously, but now we have issues with like digital censorship as well, right? If you say the wrong thing on social media, you get deplatformed or censored or canceled. How does Bitcoin contribute to resolving that in, in digital space? So I wouldn't
1: say Bitcoin contributes to that blockchain technology mm. contributes to that. So there are systems out there that are being built that are decentralized, like Definity, mm. Filecoin. And so we'll eventually have anything that's a network. So let's think of networks like Uber is a network. Uber matches up drivers and riders mm-hmm. and then they take a toll for doing that. Right. They take mm-hmm. about 25% commission. Mm-hmm. You know, they extract fees out of that network. Um, eBay, another one matches up buyers and sellers and they take a toll. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you know, some sort of way, Facebook too. Facebook matches up friends and they throw advertisements at you right. and that's part of the way they extract revenue out of their network. So eventually what's going to happen is that we'll have peer-to-peer networks. You'll have a Uber, an eBay, Facebook, you know, based on blockchain uh-huh. that doesn't extract fees out of their networks. So 100% of the benefit of the network goes to the users. Mm. So, for example, in the Uber analogy, you know, the, instead of the driver getting 75% of what they earned and Uber getting the other 25%, The driver may get, you know, will get more, and the rider will pay a little bit less. Uh They'll split that. They'll split that commission with each other, and so the rider pays less. Rider, you know, the driver gets more. Same thing with Facebook and eBay. So anything that's a network is going to get replaced eventually Uh by, you know, blockchain technology. Hmm. And those are being built today. We they just haven't launched.
0: Right, Right. Right. So, this is like the mitigation of rent seeking, then? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Airbnb,
1: another one. Yeah. Right. So, a- a- any company that's out there, you know, extracting value out of their networks, you know, those models are, you know, I get replaced.
0: How do you respond to, I always have the Bitcoin maximalists chirping in my ear over here. And they were, I think their response would be something like, no, all of that will be built on Bitcoin, Lightning Network higher layer protocols uh and the general view there is that decentralization was just basically only achievable in bitcoin not in these other networks how do you navigate that type of? yeah so so we're talking
1: two different types of blockchains and so there's proof of work blockchains like bitcoin Mm -hmm. other proof of work blockchains are like dogecoin bitcoin cash monero zcash you know um, bitcoin constitutes 92% 92% of the value of proof of work blockchains. Mm-hmm. So Bitcoin already won its category for proof of work. Mm. You know, you can't replace the 92% dominant blockchain. Right. So the wor- we, uh, we as the world, we've already decided that Bitcoin is the winner for proof of work. What, you're, what we're talking about now is proof of stake blockchains, mm-hmm. you know, which are operating systems mm. using blockchain technology. We don't know who the winners are those are there's right. seven thousand proof of stake blockchains out there. Oh. You know, Ethereum's converting from proof of work to proof of stake. Um, they'll be the largest, but then there's Solana, Cardano, EOS, Tron. And so they're on, they're fighting it out. Right. You know, Solana came out of nowhere over the last eighteen months and now it's the seventh largest blockchain.
2: Yeah. You know,
1: so, you know, we just don't know who the winners are gonna be yet for gotcha. all those other ones.
0: So Bitcoin has won as money, but there are use cases for other consensus mechanisms that Mm -hmm. the market's sorting out. Right. Prediction markets, all all sorts of other, you know, stock markets. Interesting. So you mentioned that we're like 20, this, I actually didn't know this, 25% U.S. adoption based on S-curve. So that means 75 million people in the U.S. own Bitcoin? Yeah. Wow. And it's growing like the internet. Where so if the internet was growing, what was this from? Like night was Netscape. Yeah, nineteen ninety to two thousand. So that's when the you know the major growth occurred. Yeah. So, oh, so we're like in nineteen ninety four. So we're nineteen ninety four internet years in Bitcoin, basically. Exactly. So yeah. we're about to go into the yeah. So in two thousand twenty nine, using what's called
1: S curve analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, 90% of households should own Bitcoin in 2029, in seven years. In the U.S.? In the U.S. Wow. Yeah. So, the, so S-curve analysis is the way you measure the adoption of new technologies. Yeah. So what it means is that the amount of time it takes for a new technology to go from 0% adoption to 10% adoption is the same amount of time it takes to go from 10% to 90%. Right. So if it takes 10 years like Bitcoin, the Bitcoin 2009 invention, by 2019 10% of US households own Bitcoin. Okay. So that means in 10 more years from 2019 to 2029, mm. it will go from 10 to 90%. And so we're at 25%, we're on we're, we're right on yeah, right on track wow. to hit 90% in 7 years.
0: And so yeah, the S curve is like kind of that flat slow early adopter phase mm-hmm. then you get early i forget the term and then mm-hmm. you basically get yeah. to mid stage adopters late adopters and laggards right. so the time you invest is during the the apex of the
1: slope going up right right and we're you know we're just passing that and now we're on this upward trend and then by 2029 all the opportunity is gone right you know it's like if, if you invest in bitcoin in 2029 2029 it's like buying Microsoft stock in 2000, mm. after 90 percent of people already have a personal computer, right? Or it's like buying Apple stock in, you know, 2018, after 90 percent of people already have an iPhone, right? Right? Or a smartphone,
0: so you've missed it. So where do you? Where is the point of no return on that S curve? Is it like 10 percent adoption? I've have we already passed it at 20? Yeah, we we passed it. Yeah. Mm. So um, Brian Brooks. The comptroller of
1: the U S currency in 2020 said that um, 15% of households own Bitcoin um, in in the U S and then last year in 2021, um, there was a survey of 30,000 households in the U S and it showed 25%. -hmm. And then like I said, a while ago, the Biden administration with their um, executive order on blockchain, that came out a few weeks ago they quoted a 25% figure too. Hmm. But that's old data. It's actually probably more than that today. Uh-huh. We we just
0: haven't seen any recent surveys. So 25% U.S. adoption, but Bitcoin's market cap is only roughly 2% of the addressable market, but it's past the point of no return based on S-curve analysis. I mean... <laughs> yeah, the, that's Sounds why Michael rich. Saylor's so excited about it, right?
1: <laughs> So I, I know you, you've talked to him on your show yeah. before, but you know, he understands it because he experienced this 30 years ago, right? He was buying up domain names mm. 30 years ago, like hope.com, yeah. Mike.com, Michael.com, yeah. um, you know, voice.com, you know, he, voice.com, you know, he bought 30 years ago for probably $25. Yeah. He sold it for thirty million million six six months ago. <laughs> Right. I mean, so that's, that's the adoption, right? Right. 30 years ago that you have a hundred, you know, a couple hundred million people using the internet today. You have billions of people using the internet. So of course, voice.com is going to be worth more. Yeah. So it's the same thing with Bitcoin right now. There's about 200 million people in the world using Bitcoin. And in 30 years, there's going to be billions of people using it. Yeah. It's going to be worth a lot more than it
0: is today. Right. Yeah, and that, that that points towards what I think is one of the most difficult hurdles for people to get past. And it's maybe sort of twofold. One is like, I, what is Bitcoin? I can't see it or touch it, you know? It's like not money like I'm used to. And then um, second to that is like, how can you have scarcity in the digital realm, right? That just, it's hard. We're not accustomed to that, right? everything that's made of data is just replicable and really that was the problem that was the double spin problem right that we couldn't figure out how to make something that couldn't be when you send something digitally it was always just copied right even when I send you an email it's like I'm just I still have the email now you have the email we didn't have a a way to make that transfer with finality Um, but I think once you get that about Bitcoin like that's kind of a light bulb moment it's like holy cow we've we've Ported the properties of physical space into digital space. Right. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's digital cash. It's yeah. like, you know, it's like the white
1: paper. Yeah. Uh, it's a cashless, you know, it's a peer to peer cash system. Mm-hmm. You know, it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like me handing you a $20 bill. Mm-hmm. You know, if if it's out of my hand and your hand, it's your 20. Right. Right. That's what Bitcoin is. So when I send you value in Bitcoin through the blockchain, it comes from my side of the ledger and it's on your side of the
0: ledger. Yeah. That's your $20 worth of Bitcoin now. Right. And it's not mine anymore. And then yeah. that third entry in the ledger is the irreversible timestamp, basically. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's immutable. Yes. Right. It's it's immutable. Like you know, when I first heard that word,
1: I was like, "What does it immutable mean?" Mm-hmm. It means non-reversible. Yeah. Like it can't. Like you know, I can't go in and like pull that back from you. Like oh, I made a mistake. Let me pull right. it back. You know, once it's once I transfer it to you, it's permanent. Yeah. It's yours. If I wanted to get that twenty dollars worth of Bitcoin back, you have to send it back to me. Yeah. I, it's I can't pull it back. Yeah. And that's you know that's why I think credit card companies kind of like blockchain too. Yeah. You know, credit card companies, you know, they get chargebacks, you know, mm-hmm. you go buy something and, you know, there's whatever happens and they get chargebacks. And so if you have an immutable credit card system that cuts down. you know, that saves them billions of dollars a year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, I think there's a relationship here too, between the double spend problem and inflation itself, right? Like the fact that it can be, money can be conjured out of thin air is also a problem, right? Like, right all the things we've, we've talked about so um we need something that's verifiably i mean we're trading time and energy for it right time and energy is clearly limited if the thing that we're trading it for is not similarly limited then that's a problem it basically is.
1: yeah yeah i mean look, i mean I, I get a lot of questions about you know we need a federal reserve right we need a central bank mm-hmm. but the central bank didn't start until 1913 right know what do we do before that what do we do with our first 150 years Mm -hmm. of america Mm -hmm. before there was a central bank well the people that controlled the money were the central bank Mm -hmm. you know jp you know i I don't think it's coincidence that the same year jp morgan died that the federal reserve started Mm -hmm. is it right yeah jp morgan died and then a group of bankers got together and said let's start a central bank because yeah. Morgan's not here anymore controlling us. Right. You know, Morgan was the central bank. Yeah. You know, but you know, but now we have a, you know, like a federal reserve. Yeah. You know, It's not uh, federal. It's not a reserve no either.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, I love that. Um, so we talked a little bit about Bitcoin being added to portfolios almost by necessity, I guess in an inflationary world, like if you, want to preserve wealth across time that you're going to end up adding a little bit of bitcoin if nothing else as a diversifier that improves your shop ratio what i know you've mentioned something here about portfolio construction and performance what what does that look like like we tend to think i think a lot of people think the stock market goes up forever just put your money in there and don't think about it but that's not actually the case when you start looking at um historical comparisons of say like bitcoin and cash or bitcoin and treasury portfolios
1: yeah when you add bitcoin to your portfolio like we talked about it you know increases the sharp ratio or the risk adjusted returns mm. so let's just like take it to an extreme let's say you had a portfolio that was 10% bitcoin and 90% cash you know what would that portfolio look like so that portfolio of 10% bitcoin 90% cash that was less volatile than a portfolio of 100% U.S. Treasury bonds, 10-year Treasuries. Huh. So you've, you have less volatility than on a portfolio of tre- 10-year Treasuries. Which is the risk-free asset, right? And you got eight times more of the return. Wow. So why would I want that? Yeah. You know, I'm less risky than Treasuries and I get eight times more. Okay, well, how does that 10% Bitcoin, 90% portfolio of cash compare to other stocks like Apple? you know, Tesla, Amazon, you know, that outperformed all, all the thing stocks, Facebook, mm. Tesla, excuse me, Facebook, Apple. Um, the only one that didn't outperform was Tesla. Mm. And so you would have to have 30% Bitcoin, 70% cash to outperform Tesla. Mm. Tesla is the only one that outperformed the 1090. Mm. So if you, if you think about it, you know, why wouldn't everyone just have 10% in Bitcoin and 90% cash, Mm -hmm. you know, and you could outperform the stock market. You could have less risk than a portfolio of 10-year treasury bonds. Yeah. I mean, it just makes sense.
0: Well, you can be an extra crazy Bitcoiner. A lot of Bitcoiners just go 100% Bitcoin. Um, I used to be closer to that, but I'm actually holding more dollars now because of just all the uncertainty, you know, liquidity collapse and all that, but. Um seems to be a lot of peace of mind and return optimization in those in that type of strategy. It's almost like a barbell strategy, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you, there's a, you know, you can go 1% Bitcoin, 99% cash all the way up 100%. Mm-hmm. I think everyone's decision needs to be made like where are you on that spectrum? Yeah. Yeah, you know, if you think there's a 1% chance Bitcoin succeeds, Put 1% of your money in it. Exactly. If you think it's a 50-50 chance, maybe you should put 50% of your money in it.
0: Right, right, exactly. And then that gets back to that flywheel effect because the probability you're assigning to Bitcoin's success is largely based on its current market cap. So as people start thinking, okay, I think it has a 1% chance of success, they allocate 1%, that actually increases its market cap so that the next guy to evaluate it is going to assign a slightly higher probability sign therefore allocate slightly more of his funds into bitcoin and so on and so forth that's yeah. that like i feel like once you see that that game theoretic flywheel virtuous cycle that's for me that was the big aha on bitcoin it's yeah, like there's who can a multiplier stop this? effect too yeah
1: so tom lee at Fundstrat, um they've done research that shows for every dollar that goes into bitcoin the market cap of bitcoin goes up between 20 to 80 dollars hmm Okay, so if you have a trillion dollars of money going into Bitcoin over the next few years, you know, which I don't think is unreasonable, um, you know, the market cap should go up somewhere between 20 trillion and 80 trillion. So divide that by 19 million Bitcoin. You know, you, you get a million dollars of Bitcoin to $4 million of Bitcoin. Wow. You know, as that money flows in over the next few years. I mean, Michael Saylor said that, he expects a trillion dollars of public balance sheet money to go into Bitcoin once the FASB rule gets changed around gap accounting rules yeah. around Bitcoin. And so, you know, there, there's this pent up demand, yeah. you know, that will, you know, that, you know, central banks will be buying Bitcoin likely, you know, yeah. insurance companies are already buying it, but more insurance companies will start buying it. And so as this money flows in, you know, the the multiplier effect really kicks in.
0: Was it Mass Mutual that brought, bought 100 million? 100 million, yeah. yeah.
1: Which is a drop in the bucket
0: for them. But yeah, but so. it's probably
1: worth 500 million today, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that was about two years ago.
0: Do you think it is those numbers that we're discussing? I mean, they're very large or asymmetric. Is that what scares some people away? That it just sounds too good to be true or something like that?
1: Well, it's, you know, it's hard for humans to understand exponential Mm -hmm. numbers. Yeah. So it's just, you know, yeah, I mean, it's just, we're human. We're, you know, we're not programmed to think exponentially. And so you you have to understand how exponential numbers work um, in order to comprehend the potential of Bitcoin. But if Bitcoin goes to... $10 $10 million of Bitcoin over the next seven years, which is what our models show that is going to happen. That's not any more growth than what happened over the last seven years. Right. It's the right. same percentage growth. Mm. You know, it's just bigger numbers.
2: Yeah.
0: People get sticker shock from the numbers, I guess. Right. I mean, yeah.
1: Bitcoin, you know, I mean, since I've been involved with it, I've seen it go from, you know, $100 when I saw it on CNBC
0: mm-hmm. with Cameron and Tyler Winkle loss what it is today yeah it's funny too after being around bitcoin for some time you start seeing people worry about a drawdown from i I don't know 60k to 30k and people are all worried and you're like having been here since a couple hundred bucks you're just like what (laughs) yeah it's not fun
1: i mean when i first you know started accumulating um you know my average cost in my first year was six hundred dollars for bitcoin and Six months later, it was at 178 dollars. Mm. Right. So yeah, I'm down 70 percent. What, 65, 70 percent? And I had a good chunk of my net worth in it mm-hmm. at the time, and you know it's painful. Yeah. And you know I figured I was either early or wrong, and I doubled down <laughs> on my research and I I bet on early. Right. And said a wrong.
0: Yeah. And yeah, you know, it's that's when the real wall of conviction is built, is in those bear markets, um, and then. Yeah, it's it's very very valuable because you're learning you're not so and I've, I feel like I get in bull markets there's just more BS and hype and all of this and not as much learning going on but in those quiet bear markets that's when people are digging in their heels building learning all of these things um, It's funny how Bitcoin does that to you
1: <laughs> it, it, it hardens your shell yeah you know it's, if it, here's the one thing that's really important you have to understand it and you have to believe in it mm-hmm. to be able to stomach the volatility. Yeah. Cuz if you don't understand it and you don't believe in what the system could do, you're on bail on it when right. it drops 50%. Yeah. No one could take it. No one could take a 50 to 80% drop. Right. Unless they have a strong core conviction. Yes. And so, you know, so my the the reason I'm saying this is that if you own Bitcoin and you really don't understand it or you don't have the conviction, you need to dig in and spend another fifty to a hundred hours understanding it. Mm-hmm. So that when it does drop fifty to eighty percent, which it will do in the future, you have the courage and the conviction to hold on to it and not sell.
0: Yeah. 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 If anything, once you build that deep conviction, you almost look forward to drawdowns, right? <laughs> Assuming you're not 100% allocated, um, you mentioned here in the outline that it's better, in your view, to own protocols rather than blockchain companies.
1: It's something I learned eight years ago, and I, I, I didn't believe it. So I think it's an important lesson. Um, so you know, I was new to the venture capital world. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what a venture capitalist did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I you know, I sold my business. I need. I, I knew I wanted to be in blockchain. So I started going around and meeting with venture capitalists, like, you know, mm-hmm. and I met with some of the partners at A16Z or Andreessen Horowitz. And um, I was trying to get into Coinbase at the time mm-hmm. in the A round. And um, Brian Armstrong wouldn't let me into the A round. So I, I went to, you know, my friends at you know, Andreessen Horowitz and I was like, hey, can you get me in? Because they seeded the company. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, their, their question was, why do you want to buy Coinbase? Why don't you just buy Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, it's a company, you know, I come from traditional mm-hmm. finance, you make money, on owning companies. And they're like, no, like, you're thinking about it all wrong. <laughs> they're like, you know, we have to invest in Coinbase cause we're a venture firm yeah. where, you know, we're required to build companies, invest in companies, you know, at the time they weren't an asset manager like they are today. Um, and so they couldn't own Bitcoin. And so they and they just told me you just buy Bitcoin, you'll be better off. And I thought they were trying to make <laughs> me feel better. Like, oh, we can't get into Coinbase, just go buy some of this Bitcoin. And, um, you know, I ended up getting in the B round, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, you know um, Coinbase, um, from the B round till it went public, Bitcoin outperformed Coinbase mm. by a multitude, by, you uh, know, by like right. 50%. And so they were a hundred percent right. And so the point of this is that when you have the choice of investing in the protocol like Bitcoin
2: uh-huh.
1: or investing in a company, you want to invest in the protocol uh-huh. and the data shows that. So if you look at the, when we built the internet, you couldn't own a piece of the internet. You couldn't call your stockbroker and say, buy me a hundred shares of HTTP uh-huh. or SMTP, right? Uh-huh. You couldn't own the software. The only software you could own were domain names. Uh-huh. So, So besides the domain names, all the value accumulated to the companies that built on top of the internet. So the companies were like, you know, Amazon, Netflix, you know, eBay. Yeah. You know, all, you know, that's where the, that's where the value accumulated, but with blockchain, it's flipped upside down. Mm -hmm. If you look at the value of the companies, they're worth about $300 billion. Mm -hmm. So this is Coinbase digital currency group, Kraken, uh-huh. you know, add all those companies up, they're three hundred billion. If you look at the value of the protocols, they're worth three trillion. Uh-huh. They're you know ninety percent of the value is in the protocols, only ten percent in the companies. So the value is accumulating into the protocols, uh-huh. the software. So you want to own the software, unlike the internet where you wanted to own the companies. Right. So that's an important lesson I learned eight years ago. I, I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now. It's better to own the uh, it's better,
0: better to own Bitcoin than Coinbase. Basically. Right, right, right. Uh, this is the, is that the FAT protocol thesis? Yes. Is that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I, I for Adventures. Ventures.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it came off that. Was it Fred Microsoft. that wrote that? Uh, I don't know if it was Fred. It was no. someone It. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. Just, and it, it, um again, back to the minimizing rent-seeking kind of model, right? You have smaller application layers, more of the values in the the protocol itself. So it actually adds economic more economic value to the network. And now we could own the protocols, whereas we can own those 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting change. Um, so one area that is just ceaselessly attacked about Bitcoin, this is like, this seems to be the number one hangup in people's journey down the rabbit hole is like, Oh yeah, it's all these things. It's interesting. It's scarce. It's an innovation, but they hit this stumbling block of like governments will never allow it. And they just stop. Like they stop critically thinking at that point. Um, And like all things in Bitcoin, you need to think more deeply is my opinion. It's like, you can't just say governments don't allow it because there's a lot of things governments try to not allow that still happen. How do you wrestle with that conversation?
1: Yeah. So I look at back in 1996, so there was a company that wanted to export cryptography software outside the U S and the department of defense objected to that under national security reasons. They didn't want this cryptography software exported outside the US. So the DOJ, Department of Justice sued um, this company and they lost. And so what the Supreme Court decided back in 1996 um, was that computer code is language hmm. and specifically cryptographic computer code, which is hmm. what Bitcoin is, is, you know, is language. And it's protected under the first amendment of the United States. It's mm. speech. Mm-hmm. And so you can't outlaw computer code in the U S it's like outlawing speech. Right. And so, you know, when, whenever people say, you know, the governments are outlawed Bitcoin, you know, I just point to the 1996 Supreme court decision that was already been decided and this decision was before there was a Bitcoin you mm-hmm. know, Bitcoin or blockchain software, we've already decided that in the U S that you can't outlaw computer code. Uh And back in 2014, Congress actually held hearings on whether to outlaw Bitcoin. And they decided not to because of two reasons. One is that their staffers came up, you know, during their research, you know, showed the Uh congressman like, you know, there's a law that says, you know, we can't outlaw this thing. And, um, or a, a Supreme Court decision saying we can't outlaw it. But the other reason they didn't want to outlaw it is because it would drive the innovation outside the U S mm, right now the U S benefited greatly for having the internet companies here in the U S you know, I, I, I know a lot of people joke that Al Gore invented the internet, but mm-hmm. he's actually the one that opened up the internet to commercial use, mm-hmm. right? He didn't invent it, but you know, he took the ARPANET and allowed the commercial use of it back in the early nineties. Before that it was against the law actually against the law to do a commercial transaction or do an advertisement on the internet Hmm. because the internet was for government and education, you know, university use. And so Al Gore helped pass a law, Clinton signed, that allowed the commercial use so you could advertise Mm -hmm. and do commercial transactions on the internet. And that's why we have the internet companies today based in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And we benefited greatly from that tax revenue, jobs, you know, the U.S. You know, did, did really well on the, you know, most valuable the companies in the world. Right, yeah. exactly. And so Congress back in 2014, you know, when they were reviewing do we outlaw this blockchain technology, this Bitcoin thing, they decided not to. One, because you can't. The Supreme Court says it's language mm-hmm. or speech. And the second reason is they don't want to drive the innovation outside the U.S. Right. And, and the Biden administration just confirmed that A few weeks ago, yeah, they're saying, let's get our act together and let's, you know, let's not regulate this thing to death, but let's encourage the development of blockchain technology. Right. So that the U.S. can be a leader in this new technology.
0: Yeah, it's, it's effectively replicating the strategy that worked with the Internet was like kind of the wait and see. They're letting the market work, right? Let the market sort of work itself out and then figure out from the state's perspective how to tax it so they can benefit from it. They're taking the same approach with Bitcoin and blockchain basically. Yeah. And the, and the government makes a lot of tax revenue off Uh blockchain. So back in
1: 2017, there were, there was a hundred billion dollars of capital gains taxes collected Hmm. by the U S government, 25%, 25 billion of that was from cryptocurrency. And that was back in 2017. And that's when the market was relatively smaller than it is today. Yeah, yeah. Today we have $3 trillion worth of value in the blockchain ecosystem. The cost basis on that is way less than that. It's probably, mm-hmm. you know, less than a hundred, you know, billion. Um, and so there's a lot of unrealized capital gains that the government could, be, you know, if everyone sold all their crypto holdings, yeah. you know, the government would make, you know, 600 700 billion dollars on that. Wow. You know, why would they want to destroy that? Yeah. They wouldn't. You know, the right. government needs the money. So, yeah. you know, now they're encouraging people to to build in this technology.
0: It's another one of those aspects where Bitcoin's incentivizing right. even incentivizing government, the government to like, adopt hey, it. Yeah. It's tax revenue for us. It's really incredible. Um That's one of those things like just like the deeper you look, you just start seeing the economic the economics of it from all sides like you can't ignore it like do you, do you care about wealth and and growth are you an organism <laughs> like then <laughs> a human organism i guess at least um that's all really interesting uh you have some thoughts written down here this is where i, I you know i like to talk about this a lot i know that's <laughs> why i threw it in there <laughs> <laughs> this <laughs> i want another this is a deeper down the rabbit hole light bulb for me, but the, the realization that Bitcoin's the first man-made invention in human in history that is absolute, right? That we've created something that has the character of absolute, absolute scarcity, specifically 21 million fixed supply. Um, nothing has that characteristic that's man-made. Really the only things that do have that characteristic are time and energy so, what are your thoughts on that, like Bitcoin's relationship with time or energy?
1: Yeah. So, um, Albert Einstein, you know, said all time is equal. Mm. So, what what he meant was that the past is equal to the present, which is equal to the future time. Mm-hmm. There, there's when you look at the theory of relativity and the equations around time, past, present, and future time are all equal. Uh There's no difference. And, you know, you know, Albert Einstein used to say, you know, the the only distinction between the past present and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion Uh because there's no difference between it. And so, you know, we could use that to think about like Bitcoin, you know, if there's no difference in time, um, then, you know, one Bitcoin in the past equals to one Bitcoin today, is equal to one bitcoin in the future. Yeah. You know, the the energy in the creation of one bitcoin doesn't get dispersed or evaporate. You know, like mm-hmm. if you have an ice cube, eventually it melts and the water evaporates, right? Mm-hmm. The energy in the ice dissipates. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin doesn't
2: dissipate.
1: Right. It's, you know, it's a block of energy that will always be there. Yeah. Just like time. Yes. You know, time is always there. You know the past time and the future time, the present time. You know it, it's always there. It's always equal, and so one bitcoin yesterday equals one bitcoin today equals one bitcoin in the future, and so I think that if you take, if you compare time and Bitcoin, they're they're they are they are they are symbiotic. They're yes. they're together in, in the universe.
0: Yeah, it's so such a rabbit hole. It's like that's one of the major purposes of money is to allow us to transfer our time and energy in a productive way, right? And we we are more productive acting in concert than we are in isolation. That's what money enables. But we've never been able to create a perfect money, right? Something that maps on to time and energy perfectly. That's, you know, gold was like an approximation for that, but imperfect, obviously. But now with Bitcoin, it seems like we have created something that perfectly maps on to time and energy. And I like the The one people say that a lot and like one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. And a lot of people are like, you're saying nothing. Like, what does that mean? Of course, one, like, so does $1 equal $1, but that's not, I think the deeper point is that point of Bitcoin being absolute and that you can only define something, it almost transcends relativity and you can't define something that's absolute relative to anything else because the absolute is absolute, right? Like time and energy, it's everywhere. And so I think that's the subtle, deeper point when Bitcoiners say that. But we sound like crazy, nonsense-talking cultists to people sometimes. (laughs) I would agree with that. Um, Another thing, you know, the point of relativity, too, is so interesting because that's also what money is doing. It's it's capturing the relativity of goods and services and expressing it in prices, right? Like we say a table's—what's the common example I give— We say the house costs $440,000 and the car costs $40,000. We don't say the house costs 11 cars, right? We we express it all in the common language of numeracy. So money is meant to be a fabric of communication about relativity in the economy. And the ideal money would be something that's absolute, right? That transcends that relativity it's expressing. Something like that. So yeah it's a rabbit hole (laughs) (laughs) um and then there's a moral dimension to this too of course which is you know the relationship of central banking and warfare um how do you think about that
1: yeah so for your listeners that um are listening to the podcast they aren't watching the video uh, you won't be able to know, but I'm in a wheelchair. So when I was 16, I was in a car accident, left my legs paralyzed. Um, so I know what it's like to live with a body that's not fully functional, right? I've been living with that for 38 years. Um, so when I see like our soldiers coming back from war being, you know, injured, loss of limbs, brain damage, you know, their, their bodies were taken away from them, right? They're not functional anymore. And so I, you know, I'm very Mm anti-war. You know, I I think we should have a strong defense. And when I mean, I mean defense. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be using our war powers on offense like we do today. Mm -hmm. And um, so Bitcoin fixes that. You know, it's one of the solutions. And and the the reason I'm saying that is because if the government would go around and say, give me 10% of your household net worth, give me 10% of your, you know, your money. So I can go do, you know, conduct a war. No one would do that. Right. I'm not giving up 10 or 20% of my money so you can go kill other people. But so what the government does, they debase the currency. They just Uh print more money. So my money is worth less and they just stole the 10 or 20% to go conduct a war Uh against my will. Uh And I'm completely against that. And so, you know, that's one reason I'm passionate around about Bitcoin uh-huh. is because I think in the future it will reduce, it won't eliminate, but it will reduce the likelihoods of wars, yeah. unnecessary wars because countries won't be able to afford them because mm-hmm. you're not going to go around and have people kick into the, the pot, you know, to go, you know, conduct a war. Right. And you won't be able to debase your currency anymore because we won't be on a, fiat standard, will be on a Bitcoin standard. And so that's, you know, that's one reason I'm, I'm passionate about this.
0: Yeah. Amen to that. Um, it seems like something we've been struggling with just as a species for a really long time. This, I mean, both sides of it, right? The debasing of currency and the waging of war, they go hand in hand. If you start studying the history of money, you're going to see how they're two sides of the same coin, frankly. And so to have an undebasable money there is this promise at least that it could constrict the scope of warfare over time and that is just that's why I've, I've often said bitcoin is almost like a humanitarian movement right wrapped in this economic um revolution and something that you know as you point out here something henry ford and thomas edison talked about a long time ago
1: right henry ford was anti-war too yeah yeah you know, he um so him and thomas edison back in um, I think it was the twenties. I think,
0: I think so. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, they created, they wanted to create electric money. Mm-hmm. So what does that sound like? <laughs> right. What's electric money? They wanted to get off. They wanted the government to get off gold, which was used to fund wars, mm-hmm. like, you know, dollars are used to fund wars today and they wanted to go on an electric money system. And they had a, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, they were to build a dam and have this proof of concept of how we could, you know, have electric money mm-hmm. instead of, you know, a, a gold or a dollar based system. And um, it never got off the ground. It got shut down, you know, before it could even launch. But they had the idea back then mm-hmm. of creating electric money, which is what Bitcoin is today. Yeah. So it's, you know, that was a hundred years ago. Yeah. So, the, you know, Bitcoin's not a new invention. Right. You know, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison thought about this 100 years ago. Yeah. It's just that now we have the technology so it can't be stopped. Right. We have cryptographic software that's decentralized and distributed around the world that the government can't stop from yeah. people using it. So that, that's
0: the only difference today. Th- therein lies all the difference, right? Because they've stopped every other alternative monetary system that's ever existed, but with... Satoshi achieving actual decentralization. Um, we have the Hayekian sly roundabout way, hopefully. All right. <laughs> Brian, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, you know, I'm big on education. I love how we just walked through the whole gamut here. So thank you for that. Um, where can my audience find out more about you or your work?
1: Yeah. So, like I said, I'm the CEO and CIO of Off the Chain Capital. Um, if you go, to offthechain um, that's our website. Um, we do have a Bitcoin education um, um, section in there, so if you want to learn more about Bitcoin, um, we have all sorts of educational materials in there. Um, our fund is a private investment fund. Um, we have a million dollar minimum for for clients. We're you know mainly institutional, um, but you know you, know, you, you know, off the chain is the the best place to find us.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian.
1: Yeah, thank you.